This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Mailbag. Nothing personal. Word of the day is mailbag episode. Today is Friday, May 20th. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you a secret. Here's the secret. I'm not recording this on Friday, May 20th, but we're releasing it on Friday, May 20th, because today, in the middle of a winter storm in Denver and its environs, I'm trying to climb a 14er in order to train for a much crazier thing that I'm doing. But I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do it, but we're not doing a regular show Friday, which you're gonna hear yesterday or tomorrow, depending on when you're listening. Whatever, man, it's mailbag. I like the mailbag episodes. I like when we have a chance to do them. That's when you ask me questions. Here's how to do it, several ways. The way that means the most to Coke is you go into Apple Podcasts and you write a review you rate it five stars, write a review, and then within the review, ask a question. The other way is on Twitter, David P. Sampson. You can ask a question in my DMs. But if you're gonna do it that way, also go to Apple because we only have like 2,300 ratings and we're supposed to have more and I don't know how to get them. So just take the time if you don't mind. And if you don't have Apple Podcasts, of course you do, it's on your iPhone. And if you don't have an iPhone, then go to Spotify and hit follow. So mailbag episodes is where I spend an entire episode answering your questions and tell some stories and hope that you still have a retention rate of 98.6%. I've got the fever. Do you know 98.6 is not the fever anymore, Coca? They changed it. That used to be like if you're like 99.1 means you have a fever and 98.6 used to be normal. Now the normal fever is lower all of a sudden. Like 97.3 is what a normal fever is. In the old days, if you had 97.3, like you were at the doctor. Anyway, hi, David. We got to start. I listen to your show every day after work while I take a 45-minute walk. That is a huge, great coincidence because the show is 45 minutes. Your conversation about life and dealing with grief have really helped me. Sorry if you have talked about this before, but can you talk about how you were feeling when D. Gordon hit a home run after Jose's passing? Thanks. So I wasn't going to take this question. Because not that I've talked about it before, which I may have, but there's always so many of you who are new to the show and may not have heard that episode and don't remember when that episode could have been. But thinking back to that day in September, on September 26th, 2016, is something I happen to do every single day. So just to set the stage, on September 25th of 2016, which is a different question altogether that you're not asking, at about 6 o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call from Mike Hill and we then were on the phone with Fish and Wildlife in Miami identifying a dead body that turned out to be Jose Fernandez, identifying him from a tattoo that he had of a bicycle crank. He loved to bike. And I, 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 the rest of the day became quite a blur. And there are some episodes where we've discussed how that day went. But suffice it to say, we ended up at Jose's mother's house with his mother and his grandmother and his girlfriend who was pregnant at the time now has a five-year-old daughter because it's been five years she was born on february 24th her name is penelope of 2017 just turned five and i was forced to deal with something that they don't teach you in nepotism school they don't teach you in president school 
I was put in charge as the face of trying to deal with a community in mourning, deal with the team in mourning, deal with a organization that did not know how to move forward. We had to do a press conference. We had to have different planning meetings to talk about the funeral, to talk about what we were doing on the field, off the field. Everything was going on all at once. One of the decisions that was made, and if you go back somewhere on Google, I bet it exists, Coke, is when I met the media in the dugout uh, the next morning before the game that we were going to play because we delayed, we canceled one game against the Braves, but we had the Mets the next day on September 26th. And I met the media while sitting in the dugout. I was wearing a pink and blue checkered shirt. I remembered. I actually, believe it or not, Coke, I have it with me now. And uh, I don't recall much of that interview except they asked me to go through some of the decisions that were made. And one of the decisions we made on the day he died, which is so crazy to think about, is that we were going to play the next day because we had not been eliminated from the playoffs. We were playing the Mets who had not been eliminated from the playoffs. And so it was a meaningful game that late in September. And we all decided that we were going to wear Fernandez jerseys. So we had to have those jerseys made. And we didn't put the names of our players on the back. We put Jose's name on the back. So every player that day, uh, the next day, that Monday, wore a 16 Fernandez jersey. And there was a ton of attention. There were a ton of fans at the game. It was the most surreal atmosphere. And I was in the clubhouse before the game. And during the course of the day before, the day he passed away, I had been speaking to players. Martin Prado had taken a leadership role. Giancarlo Stanton, Yelly, Christian Yelich. And we had talked about, I had a conversation with Mike Dunn that I recall. Adam Conley was there. I recall talking to him. So many different players. And we talked about what we were going to do, how we were going to address this, how we could both respect and honor Jose and understand that we have to play a game that mattered. And what we came up with was that we would do an internal grieving session, which we did, where we sat in the clubhouse as a group it was me and Mike Hill and Dan Jennings, and uh, we basically sat in that clubhouse for hours just talking to the players and telling stories. And, you know, some people, like with anything in grief, right? Some people laugh, some people cry, some people do both. And when we realized that we were playing the game and we were going to wear the 16 jerseys, etc., when I was with Don Mattingly, who at that time, Coca, I think I'm right, I believe that was his first year as manager of the Marlins was the 2016 season. I don't know why I have that in my mind. It's so long ago. But that is my gut feeling that I was only with him for two years, 16 and 17. And we were looking at the lineup. And, of course, D. Gordon at that time was our leadoff hitter. And there wasn't even a question about it. So we had a bunch of pregame. We had a moment of silence. There were a bunch of interviews that were being done. There was a bunch of guests that we had at the game, and my mind was just all over the place, and I went to sit next to the dugout to start the game because for me, games have always just been, right, an opportunity where it's the comfort of time. And what I mean by the comfort of time is that at 7.07, some years it was 7.05 or 7.10 or 7.12, whatever the time is, you know that every day of that particular year, certainly every home game X. Sundays and whatever, if the time's different and Saturday, you get my point that I am going to be watching a game. No matter what else is going on during the course of that day, it's game time and you get into game mode where you're thinking about what's happening on the field and you really try to forget what's happening off the field. And I remember that day going to sit next to the dugout trying to artificially put myself in that mode where I could just watch the game. And I don't know who I was fooling because the entire, everybody was staring at everybody else. There was nobody talking anywhere. It was not normal in any stretch. And so I'm sitting there and out comes, you know, the anthem in the moment of silence. And then D. Gordon, when a game starts in the bottom of the first, you have the leadoff hitter and your number two hitter. And I don't recall who the number two hitter was. I just know that D. Gordon was the leadoff hitter that particular day. I don't know who we bat second that year. It could have been it could have been Prado, but I doubt it. I wouldn't think so. I would think Prado would have bat batted sixth maybe in that game against the Mets, and then maybe Stan was batting second at that time, uh, or he could have been actually in the 3-4 hole. We had Ozuna batting second. Oh, of course, Ozuna was there in the on-deck circle. 
Oh my God, thank you, Coca. So Gordon is there warming up, at, you know, swinging the bat as well as Ozuna. No one's talking. And all of a sudden, Ozuna walks to the plate and Bartolo Colon is pitching. And I notice that D. Gordon's on the wrong side, that he's hitting righty. And I will never forget what was in my head at that moment because I had not been told that D. Gordon was going to swing from the right side in honor of Jose Fernandez in his first at bat. That had not crossed my desk. No player had mentioned it to me. I found out later that it was something that D had talked about and had told both the umpire and Don Mattingly that he was doing, and I was not upset with it. In regular, in the regular world, on a regular game, that obviously would have bothered me to have something like that happen. The same way I was bothered when Ichiro pitched in the last game of a season. I think we were in, I don't know where we were, in Philly maybe to end a season when Ichiro pitched. Dan Jennings was the manager, Coca. That's an easy game to find. It was the final game of a Marlins season. My guess is it was either 15 or 16, and uh, he, he pitched, and we didn't know about it, and we were up in the box furious that we were not aware of it. But in any case, so I, I don't recall being upset or angry. I actually recall myself thinking, is D. Gordon a switch hitter? Which is the most bizarre thing to think, of course, because I know he's not a switch hitter. Yet my brain was not present the way it is when a game starts for all the thousands of games where I was attending as an executive where I had to be locked in. And I knew that there was something going on in my head that maybe wasn't making things as clear as they could be. But to me, he was not a switch hitter. So what's he doing? And then I said, I must be wrong. And that's crazy, right? Normally, I don't question myself. I, I just assumed that wow, I guess he's a switch hitter and that's why he's hitting from the right side, but that doesn't really make sense with Cologne on the mound. And then he takes a pitch and then he walks off toward the dugout and he switches helmets to his right ear flap helmet and then goes and starts hitting lefty again. And then I'm watching and then Cologne, whatever it was, ball one, strike one, I don't remember what pitch it was. And then D. Gordon squares up and hits a fly ball. And in Marlins Park, and we're going to talk about this later today maybe, when Marlins Park, when there is a shot to right field, uh, you really have to get it, right? That was the purpose of the ballpark. The ballpark was built to be a pitcher-friendly ballpark. If you don't square up, you're not going to hit a home run. And D. Gordon, as you know, was not exactly a power hitter. So D. Gordon swings, and all I remember on the swing is, you know, all right, that's an F9 and one out, Ozuna's up, and that's the end of it. F9 is when you're scoring a game, and that's a fly ball to right field. And then it keeps going, and then it keeps going, and then I re I was looking from the first row next to the dugout, and I was sort of squinting my eyes, and what? wait, I think he just hit a home run. That cannot be. D. Gordon did not just hit a home run to lead off a game when he doesn't hit home runs. So I'm watching D. Gordon, and I don't see him rounding first. I don't see him rounding second. I don't see him rounding third. The first time I saw D. Gordon was when he was getting to home plate because I was looking at the stands, then I was looking in the dugout, and then I was looking at Jeffrey, the owner with whom I was sitting, and I just, I missed it. Like, I didn't even see the ball land. It was too, too I just assumed it was an F9. So he crosses home plate, and the next thing I know, he's crying. And he hugs Ozuna. Of course, I should have remembered it was Ozuna. And then he goes into the dugout, and I am looking left into the dugout because the way the seats were built at Marlins Park, because we built it, we built it in a way that the owner's seats next to the dugout, you don't have to lean forward to look in. You're literally, your head's in the dugout, which is what our owner wanted, and I wanted it. It sounds great. So I'm looking in the dugout, and D. Gordon is just hysterical. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, this just became the most memorable baseball play I'll ever be a part of. And I was smart enough to realize that I was living through it when I was living through it. Many times, as we've talked about, something's going on and you don't realize what's happening until it's done. And then you only realize the enormity of it when you're looking at it in the rearview mirror. But at that moment, I knew that I was looking at what would be the most memorable play of my entire career, not knowing at that time my career would end after the next season, not knowing anything. So when you ask me what my feelings were when he hit the home run, 
it was disbelief, it was sadness, it was shock. It was, it doesn't matter that Bartolo Colon knew the plan and that he grew to fastball in. I don't care about that, right? You still have to hit the home run. Bartolo Colon was, of course, complicit in this, and that's okay. And um, I didn't quite recover from that game. And my recollection, Coca, is that I don't know who has the ball. That's number one. But I also am not sure that we won a game the rest of the year. Because we went on a road trip after we played the Mets, and our season that year ended in D.C. And I remember very clearly the road trip in D.C. to end the season, and it was an exhausting end of the season with what had just gone on. It was surreal. We didn't really understand what was happening. We'd been eliminated from the playoffs, and the games just didn't matter. It's like we had to win that game, and we did win that game on Monday, September 26th. And I'm not sure if we won again, actually. We only won one game after that. So there you go. Our first game in Washington, and we didn't win again. Thank you for seeing that, Coca. So you're bringing back something that uh, I still think about every day. I, I am in touch, as you know, with Penelope, Jose's daughter, and Maria, Penelope's mother. Jose's mother, Maritza, her, his grandmother, Obuela. And that is a loss that here we are, five and a half years. It's going to be six years. Other than the fact he's been totally erased by by Sherman and Jeter, which makes me insane. You know what, Coke? I'm gonna I'm gonna take a minute here, if that's okay, and making a quick appeal because I know, even though Jeter was fired, I know you're listening there in the Marlins front office. Believe me. And I would say this: I understand the complicated nature of the manner in which he died. I understand the fact that there were drugs in his system. I understand that he may or may not have been driving a boat, likely was driving a boat that ended up crashing into a jetty that ended up killing three people, including him. I understand that three lives got lost. What I cannot come to grips with, and it makes me so angry, I'm not sad anymore, I'm angry, that you are willing as an organization to turn your back on Jose and not tell his story. How dare you, Miami Marlins? Tell the whole story. Don't just tell the story of his death. Tell the story of his life. Don't be ashamed of it. Learn from it. Talk about the frailty of freedom. Talk about the fact that Jose felt invincible. Use that to talk to other kids, other people from Cuba, other people who grew up without freedom, who come to the United States and get that freedom that now is freaking disappearing under the weight of people who would rather not care that freedom be the number one thing that people should be after here. There's a little tiny plaque, a little nothing. You took down his locker and he didn't tell anyone about it. That's number one. Number two, you got rid of the Jose Fernandez wall that was signed by fans and players alike. Just got rid of it because you didn't want you to put a tiny little plaque in the West Plaza. That's it. It's inexcusable and you know it. Jose Fernandez was the single best pitcher we ever had. Ever. The entire organization, find me a better one. Josh Beckett, Jose was better. Kevin Brown, better. Al Leiter, better. LeVon Hernandez, better. Josh Johnson, better. Sandy Alcantara, better. Find me one. I don't really know where that came from. I'm sorry. Are we rolling? Is that in the show? Not in the show? It's up to you, Coco. But I'll do a, uh, I'll do a segue now. Ready? Four, six, nine. Okay, so that was the question about D. Gordon. Let's do another one. Hello, David. Hello. You've talked about building Marlins Park on time and under budget. That's true. It's the only ballpark ever done on time and under budget. You can definitely do a ballpark on time and over budget. You just pay people to work three shifts, right? All 24 hours. But I was wondering how you all determined the dimensions of Marlins Park. How did you decide how deep the foul poles would go? How tall the walls would stand, the angles of the outfield walls, etc. What parameters did MLB require you to follow? What were your goals when it came to the dimensions of the field of play? This is a very timely question, given that you may have read that Aaron Judge just got out of Denver. Out of Denver. Hello, because I'm walking in Memphis, walking with my feet 10 feet off of Beale. Um, I'm in, not in Memphis, though. We did a show from Beale Street last year, didn't we, Coca? I think my road trip had us in Memphis one of those days. I was in Memphis. I just don't know if we did a show. I don't know whether it was a weekend or during the week. Anyway, so in Baltimore, they just moved the fences back. 
and it looks ridiculous right now, and they're screwing with Camden Yards as a way to make believe that they're spending capital reserve money, which, by the way, laugh all you want, but that's a big factor when teams have money. This is a much longer subject, but let me just give you a little taste, and maybe we can do it on a future mailback. When teams have money in a capital reserve fund, sometimes the provisions, that is used to get a new scoreboard. It's used to replace seats. It's used to replace paint, to replace flooring. It's used to replace clubhouses and dugouts. It's, it's used to keep up. It's like if you had a fund for your house with all of the repairs that need to be done. When you have a stadium, which is like a million square foot house, so picture how big your house is. Now picture building a million square foot house. That's what it is to build a ballpark. Though Marlins Park, I think, was around 925,000 square feet. But in any case, you have a plan and a schedule of repairs. The scoreboard will last blank years. The seats will need to be replaced, 1,000 seats every two years, and you then priced it out, and then you have a reserve. And that reserve is used to pay for the repairs because you don't want to pay it out of your current day budget, and there's some tax benefits for capital expenditures, et cetera. But if you do not use the money in the capital reserve fund, there are some communities that negotiate with their teams that that money can then be taken out of the capital reserve fund and that can be put back in, let's say, a general fund of the city or the county where the ballpark is. No, under no circumstances can the money be taken out of the capital reserve fund that's unused and put into payroll. That's not going to be allowed because then all owners would just empty the fund and then not fix anything. So it's possible the Orioles had to just spend their money. It's possible they're trying to put lipstick on a pig and make Camden Yards. And by the way, Camden Yards is not a pig. It was one of the most beautiful stadiums of all time. That was just an ode to Levitard. When we signed Pudge Rodriguez in 2003, I believe he called the signing putting lipstick on a pig, which I thought was really nice at the time. And then we won a ring. And I don't think I let Levitard interview Pudge because he said Pudge wouldn't help us. But maybe they're doing trying to fix Camden Yards, which will help increase attendance. But the fact of the matter is their attendance is down because their team stinks and they're on a sort of rebuild. But this year, they redid the dimensions and they moved the outfield wall fence back. And Aaron Judge went crazy, called it a travesty, called it a, Coca told me, called it a create a park or a build a park or a Chick-fil-A park. I don't remember what he called it. But at Marlins Park, we were clear from the beginning. We met with the architect, and here's how it starts. You look at the plot of land, and then the architect puts down a stadium. And what he does is he puts down the dimensions to the existing 29 ballparks plus your ballpark on a piece of paper to show you where that ballpark, all those ballparks, would fit in your plot of land for the new ballpark, and then says, and what do you think? What do you want? Do you want to do something that has some character to it? So, for example, do you want Tallis Hill in Houston? When the when Houston first built Minute Maid, there was that big flagpole in the middle of center field that people had to run up to catch a ball, and then people said, well, that doesn't make sense. We don't want to keep honoring Tal Smith, the president of the team. So they got rid of that in, in Minute Maid Park. Uh, do you want to put a teal monster like we had at Pro Player? So do you want to take anything from Pro Player like with City Field? They said, do you want to take the red apple from Shea Stadium and move it to City Field? What features do you want? So you have the conversation with the architect, what will fit, where it'll fit, what it will look like. Then we have the conversations with the baseball people, not the salespeople, but the baseball people. And we came to a decision that we wanted a pitcher's park. We did not want a fair park. A fair park is one where if you are a good hitter, you're going to succeed. If you're a good pitcher, you're going to succeed. A pitcher's park means that if you are a below average pitcher, you are going to succeed. And if you are an above average hitter, you will need that in order to succeed. And we always believed, having won the World Series only six years earlier because the design of Marlins Park really started in earnest in 07, so four years earlier. Building started in 09, actual construction. And by 09, we already had design documents done that we wanted to win with pitching and defense. And to win with pitching and defense, we are going to have the walls as far back as possible. And then we're going to put a pool in left field, but we're going to make the wall see-through. But we're going to make the wall high so balls can hit the wall. And so we wanted exciting plays where pitching, speed, and defense could come into play, and that would help you win. The thing about doing dimensions in a new ballpark is that you get wind studies done. You get sun studies done. Sun studies were not as important to us because we knew the roof was going to be closed all the time. But wind studies, with we had walls, operable walls in the outfield that would be open or closed. The roof could be open or closed, partway, full way. So you do all these studies. And what the studies are meant to do is to tell you how the ballpark will play. So you will read when you look at articles about new stadiums. When this stadium was built, we expected it to play like blank. And guess what? 
They're all full of it because those studies are the biggest waste of about $200,000 that I remember as part of the ballpark because they don't tell you squat. We didn't know at all how the ballpark would play because it played way, way more pitcher-friendly than we expected when we built it. So while the ballpark's being built before the seats, the seats are just beginning to be put in, and you can also find this on Google, the first time we had hitters in there, we, bought, we brought Hanley Ramirez and a bunch of other hitters. Gabby Sanchez, I believe, was one of them. We wanted someone from the right side. I think we wanted someone from the left side, and they stood at where home plate was, and they were hitting balls. Like, they took batting practice while the stadium was under construction. And we, again, the balls were flying out of the ballpark. And we were extremely concerned about that because we wanted a pitcher's ballpark. But during this BP, during construction, it looked like it was going to be a hitter's ballpark. And we approached the architect, a guy named Earl Santee, from a great firm named Populous. He's the most famous. He is a Hall of Fame stadium architect. The number one stadium architect of all time, actually. Earl Santee is who designed the great Marlins Park, which was great until it, whatever. I'm not going to get into Jeter again. So we went to Earl Santee and said, we got a small problem. Uh, this park is playing too offensively. And he said, well, just wait. Once we get the roof up and once we close the wall, we just got to see what it is with people in the stands. Ha, ha, ha. We got to see what it's like when there's grass and just we need to see it built. So it gets built and we do exhibition games. The first game ever played there, my recollection, Coca, is that it was a Berlin-Columbus high school game was the first actual game played at Marlins Park. I have no idea why I remember that, and I very well could be wrong, but there's something about it that makes me feel it's right. Sometime in March, maybe, during spring training, during March of 2012, and these high schoolers are hitting the ball, and it's not really going very far. And we said to ourselves at the time, no problem, it's just high schoolers, that's not a big deal. Let's see what happens when we bring the pros in. About two weeks into the season, got approached by Giancarlo Stanton. I won't forget this ever. They're filming the franchise, and he, would, he did not want to have this filmed. And he comes up to me, and he says, uh, David, you got a problem with the ballpark. And I, and I said, what? He said, no one's going to hit home runs here. I can't. It's me. I'm the only one who can hit home runs here. I said, Giancarlo... We built this so that you'd be the only one who can hit home runs. We want to win with pitching. And he said, we can't win if we can't score. And the problem is you're going to have your players playing 81 games a year here, and they're going to get it in their head that they can hit home runs. So they're going to get down on the knob, swing as hard as they can, and they're going to fly out, and we're going to get our asses kicked. So I remember going to Larry Beinfest, who was the president of baseball operations at the time. We were talking about this, and we said, screw them. We want this ballpark to be exactly what it is, and we want pitching to thrive. What we didn't count on was the players going over my head directly to Jeffrey. And what they said to him is that you want to win. It was March 5th, Berlin versus Columbus. What do you think of that, Coca? Let me tell you something. That's 10 years ago, baby. It's a steel trap right here. If you're not watching, I don't know what I just said. I just say what you do when you try to get a horse to go like that. I don't know if you can hear that noise because I don't even know if the damn microphone's working. I don't even know if you're recording this. So anyway, so Stanton and a bunch of players go right to Jeffrey. Jeffrey calls me and Larry into the office. He says, David, Larry, <laughs> we're extending the walls. We're extending the fences. We're lowering the walls. And I said, no, we're not. You have to not take two months of statistics and tell me how this ballpark's going to play. We are going to play with these walls this year, and we're going to see what happens. The year passes. We have a terrible year. We trade all the players. And I said, Jeffrey, we're not moving back the walls now. We basically traded away all the players who were complaining, and let's just see if we can try to get some pitching back here and see if we can win with pitching, with the new team, with the lower payroll, with Mike Redman as manager. And yeah, we lost 100 games. And I said, all right, I'm going to miss half the year and go film Survivor. But anyway, the players continued to complain about the dimensions. On top of that, you had them doing it publicly. On top of that, you had players going to the media. You had players going to visiting players. You had visiting players coming up to Jeffrey and saying, this ballpark is ridiculous. 
no one can hit in here. And so we studied and for an entire year, are you ready for this little factoid analytics? We took every ball hit by the Marlins and by the visiting team, calculated how many balls would have been home runs versus outs had we moved the fences in where Stanton, Yelich, and Loria wanted the fences moved in, and whether or not we had an advantage or a disadvantage. News alert, we would have given up more home runs than we would have hit. Well, David, that's because you had no offense on your team and your team sucked. Well, we had Yelich, Stanton, Yelich, and Ozuna, right? I'm not so sure that we sucked, right? But at the end of the day, there was no advantage to moving the fences in. There was just a cost. So I held off Jeffrey one more year, and then I couldn't hold him off anymore. Marlins Park moved the fences in. We brought the fences down because the players said, hey, do you know how exciting it's going to be in right field when we jump over the fence with our glove in the Clevelander with all the naked women in their body paint and all the fans looking, and I jump over and I catch the ball? That was Yelly. And then in right field, if you lower the walls, we're going to make it so there's fans there. I mean, obviously at that time they thought there'd be fans there. And I'm going to reach over, and it's going to happen like five times a year. Find me a video where Yelich and Stanton catch a ball over the wall after we move the fences in. I was always upset when we moved them in. It was an expense. It didn't make the ballpark uglier. It just made it not what we originally had planned it to be. MLB approved the dimensions from the beginning. They approved moving. They have to approve all of your dimensions, but if you're within a certain uh, threshold, right, you're fine. It, it can't be a Little League park, right? And the MLB compares all 30 ballparks, and if you're in the range, you're fine. So MLB really did not consider it a huge deal, so we didn't have to follow any perimeters. And for us, we tried to make it as Miami as possible with the Clevelander and with the pool and with various with the home run sculpture in center field, just with various things. But you know what? We didn't win ever. It's terrible. So we did have goals, and they didn't exactly work. We didn't play one October game. Not one. We didn't even finish above 500 in the new ballpark. They've only finished above 500, the Marlins, the one short in COVID year, right? The 60-game season. Anyway, that's the story of how you get dimensions. It's sort of a fascinating conversation of the way you figure it out, and then you watch the watch the the field get gets laid out, like with stakes, before anything gets poured, before any concrete. You should do, I think we have a time-lapse video somewhere, Coca, of the ballpark being built. It's really quite cool. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Three. David, you said the smartest GMs are those who know when their window is open and when it is closed. What's the second smartest trait of a great GM? I love that question. That means you're paying attention to the show. In this show, we've talked to you about how important it is when we talk about the small market teams, which I used to think San Diego was, but their payroll is so high, maybe they're not be. But certainly with the Guardians and with whether or not and when to trade Lindor, and I believe they waited a year too long, even though they're a brilliant front office. Tampa Bay's really good at that because they're good at everything. Knowing how to keep your window open for as long as possible, but then recognizing when your window's closed, the way Oakland recognized after last year their window was closed, and so they traded away their team. Totally normal, totally what you need a GM to do. It's not what the public wants, but that is a hugely important and the number one trait. Number two, the second most important trait for a GM to have is the ability to manage up and manage down. And only smart people know how to do that. 
What managing up and managing down means is that you are able to deal with your president and owner and your manager, coaches, and players. And on top of that, you can run all the other departments, scouting, player development, analytics. I've told you before that president of baseball operations run the biggest part of the business. They don't run sales. They don't run marketing. They don't run finance. They don't run human resources up nor ballpark operations, but they've got the biggest part of the business. And if you think that managing up and managing down is easy, I want you to think about where you work right now. And if you've got people reporting to you, if you're in a management position where you've got people reporting to you and you still have a boss, do you do any introspection as to how good you are at doing it? Like, do you sit around and complain about your boss to the people who work for you? Here's a spoiler alert. Don't do it. Do you talk to your boss about how crappy things are below you? Here's a spoiler alert. Don't do it. Because if there's poor performance below you, the person above you thinks it's a reflection of you. And if you are MFing your boss to the people below you, guess what? They're doing the same thing about you because you're making it seem as though it's okay. So either way, you're a loser if you're doing it. And I don't mean a loser like in the Napoleon Dynamite sort of way. I mean, you're not going to advance and you're not going to make money and you're not going to succeed. You're a loser in that way. So the ability to manage up is the ability to lay out expectations to your boss and lay them out in a way that's clear, concise, and that you can then offer measurable results. The way to manage down is to create an atmosphere that allows the people who work for you to do their jobs in the best possible way to make you look the best you can so that you can get the measurable results to show to your boss. Managing down is understanding the different personalities you have and how to make them work together, not caring if they like each other, not caring whether they're friends, whether they socialize, not caring a lick about any of it, but making sure that they think you care enough because you want to get them to do the most they can during their time working. Smart people manage up and they're speaking to their boss. They know when to bother the boss, when not to. They know exactly what needs to be timely and interrupting, right? I got to speak to my boss right now. This is so important. And then the boss says, I'm on a boat. Like, well, why are you calling me? Well, you have no idea what just happened. And the boss says, that couldn't have waited till tomorrow or you couldn't have called this person or that person. Yikes, you're not managing up. Managing up is when you call the boss, you have an exact plan of what needs to be said, when it needs to be said, and how it needs to be said, and you do all of those on point perfectly. So you ask me, what are the smartest traits? The second smartest, God, I'm thinking back to all the people I've worked with over the years inside and outside of baseball. I've had bosses before, almost always, except for my newspaper business when I was my own boss. But other than that, I've always had bosses. And I've learned so much from them, including some of them who I never would want to be like, some of them who I definitely want to be like, and some of them who were just neutral. And I think about all the people who've reported to me over my years who, and some of them appreciated the way I did business, some of them didn't. Some of them I got through to, some of them went on to much bigger and better things, some of them didn't. And just know that when you are reporting up and reporting down, you're not gonna be perfect, you're not gonna get it all right. But the key is that you just keep going. And GMs, they just keep going. Okay. Let's do another one, Coca. Do you have time? I want to do it. Hi, David. I made a Twitter just to ask you these questions. Well, get on Apple Podcasts. I don't know how this got in here. Of course I do. It's a good question. What is MLB corporate MLB owner's perception been of you since you made the move to the media? I'm sure you still have some insiders who can give you the scoop about yourself, but I would have to think that they do not want you talking about the things you do. Are there certain people within MLB that they don't want talking to you? You're really the only one who has been in the position you're in, so I'm fascinated to hear what they think of you. <laughs> what made you ask that? Do we have any way to find out who asked that question, Coca? Is it possible that that's either a member of the Marlins or a member of the commissioner's office? Or is it the president of another team? Is it an employee of another team? Is it an employee who I promoted, who I didn't promote? Fired, hired, overpaid, underpaid, side paid? But I'm going to answer that question. And the reason I'm going to answer it is that self-actualization is something that we should all have. It's really hard, though, isn't it? 
it's very hard to take constructive criticism. And in my line of work, as president of a team, I built a shell around myself, and I didn't take much constructive criticism. I took it from Bob Dupay, and that's a story I've told you before, but he was the president of baseball back in the day. But the problem with the criticism you get when you run a team is that it's basically from people in the media, it's basically from fans, and my view of them always was that they really didn't know my circumstance. They didn't know what I was trying to accomplish. They didn't know anything about what I did, so it can't be constructive criticism. But it burns a little deeper when it's someone who knows exactly what you're going through. It's another president of a team, right, or another owner who's been around the block, who's seen it. And so I believe that during my tenure, if I were to be honest, there were many, many people who misunderstood me, who thought that I was too forward, too honest, too direct, that I did not have enough of a soft touch when a soft touch was needed, but who was going to give it to you straight. And that was purposeful. Because I felt that in order to do my job right, I had to be honest to the point of night sweats. And that doesn't mean I was always honest when I met the media. It doesn't mean I wasn't trying to give you leaks or mislead you into thinking things that I knew weren't true, but I needed you to think they were true. I'm talking about in my dealings with other employees of other teams. And I think that so many presidents and so many owners are so worried about their public image that they view anything that's done to create a headline that could be negative in any way is something that you should never do. Ironically, I have an entire show called Nothing Personal with David Sampson, with Matthew Coca producing, where we comment on people saying things to the media that are so ridiculous that they shouldn't have even said it, and we break it down and tell you what they mean and why they're saying it the way they're saying it. But when you're in the game, you don't feel like there's another option. And now that I'm on the other side and in the media, and I do, I'm an MLB analyst for CBS Sports HQ and a couple of other things, right? So I consider myself much more a... You know, I have my own show. That's, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a show personality. I don't even know what we're called, Coca. What box do you fill when they ask for your, side note here, Coca, when they ask you for uh, profession, what do you write? Do you write something? I think I always do other. Because when I was a sports executive, there was never like one for that. So I may have just put executive or president, but I don't think there was always one for that. Now, I don't know what, what to call myself. Remind me, Coca, to call Jerry to figure out, Jerry, my agent at UTA, and figure out what, what we're going to call ourselves. What do you want to be called? Like in the check the box. Whatever you want, we're going to make sure you're called that. How about, do you want to just be called Matt? See if that's its own? Just call me David, okay? Not Dave, not Sampson, just David Sampson. Just call me David. So I believe that once I got into media, if you asked around, and I've been told this, uh, I'm doing the exact show that everyone would have expected I would have done, and it's seen the success that they would have expected it to have because their view was that I was always smart enough and able to articulate complicated things in an easy way, always willing to talk about things that other people aren't talking about, and that's all Nothing Personal is. So when you ask me about the perception, the Marlins listen to Nothing Personal but hate it. They listened every day waiting to see what I was going to say about Jeter, about the Marlins, and then they'd complain to local media, and they'd say, don't give Samson, don't let him in your paper, don't quote him, he doesn't know anything, why are you keeping him alive, why are you giving him oxygen? And the answer now they know is that the media doesn't give me oxygen, you do. The audience does. And no, we're not stopping. So I believe that the perception in general is exactly what I'd hoped it would be, which is a combination of respect, awe, and askance glances. <laughs> okay, next question was about, are you certain people that they don't want talking? Oh, let me answer that, Coca, if you don't mind. Are there certain people within MLB that they don't, that they don't want talking to you? Uh, the answer is no, actually. I speak to people within the commissioner's office because they know that they're going to give me what they want out there, 
and they think I have the best chance, I am the best chance in a sports business podcast to get their point of view out there, and they get very frustrated when I give the other side, when I criticize Rob, when I talk about the union in a, in a complimentary way, when I don't follow sort of the message points that uh, we, that I have when I discuss things with them, whether it's through the CBA negotiations or whether it's through COVID, whether it's through anything. But I think overall what I've earned over time, over these almost 600 or more than 600 episodes now, is that they understand that they're not going to get an unadulterated pro-management or an unadulterated anti-player sentiment and that they're just going to get truth. And at the end of the day, if there's no one else out there with that voice, people, even when they don't agree with you, are going to flock to that voice because they know at least that they're getting the information that they can use to form their own opinions about different subjects. So there's nobody within baseball who's not allowed to talk to me. Thank you. So, again, we're going to do this again. Are we? Is it really been 45 minutes, Coca? Someone asked me who are the top five funniest people I've met in real life. You know what? Can we just go five minutes over and do that? I'm going to do it. Someone asked me who are the f- top five funniest people you've ever met in real life. That's a great question. So I made a list. And it's, a, it's an interesting list because you may not realize that some of these people are funny. Number five, top five funniest people I've ever met. Number five, Cody Ross. Cody, I know you listen to this show. I don't know if you listen to the mailbags, but I, people do not realize that you are belly laugh kind of funny. And I don't mean funny goofy. I don't mean funny brilliant. I mean just overall funny. And not It's like a contagious sort of laughter that you have. And when we spend time together, I do nothing but laugh. Now, we do things that are unmentionable that we definitely aren't going to talk about. We've done things in the past, present, and future. But that said, you are one of the top five funniest people I've ever met. You come in at number five. Number four, the current manager of the New York Yankees. When Aaron Boone played for the Marlins, not only is he a great imitator with different voices, but when you sit and talk to him, so we'd sit in the lunchroom or sit on the bus or I'd go talk to him on the plane or in the dugout before a game or whatever the case may be. And this was after he had gotten the Yankees to the World Series with that walk-off home run in Game 7 and 03 and lost to us in the World Series in 03, something that still gets his craw. And you just, you're talking about various things, and all of a sudden he'll break into a voice, like an imitating voice. He could imitate our traveling secretary. He could imitate anybody. And you just find yourself laughing. So who would think it? But Aaron Boone is the fourth funniest person that I've met in real life. Number three, Pablo Torre. You may not know Pablo Torre. He's a, he's a close friend of mine who works for Disney. And when we go out, regardless of whether we're watching Half-Baked or not, that's not really relevant, we have these conversations at this very strange level. Not that we're so self-important or not that we're so smart, but we talk about the most mundane things in such exquisite detail. Pablo, I'm not giving away anything except to say people would pay to listen to some of our conversations and the insanity of them. And I find you to be brilliant academically, socially, and hysterically. You're the third funniest person I know. Number two, Steve Martin. I'm lucky enough to have met Steve Martin several times. And this is sort of a not fair to have him on the list because I know him the least of anyone on the list, but Steve Martin to me is one of my favorite brilliant comedians, the wild and crazy guy, and a serious actor and a comedic actor. I mean, when you can do The Jerk, when you can do Parenthood, when you can do Novocaine, uh, and you can write books, uh, you're just perfect. Steve Martin, I respect you more than you know. I'm so excited for the next season of Only Murders in the Only Murders? Is it only murderers in the building? Only murders in the building. Only murderers in the building. Okay. And to finish off, the funniest person I know in real life, who I know very well, and I'm not flexing it, I'm just lucky to know him. He went to the same high school as my children, and he is an actor named Josh Gad. Josh Gad is someone you should know. He was in The Wedding Ringer. He's the voice of Olaf. He does a million different shows, both animated and regular. He was in the original cast of Book of Mormon. We're talking about a talent that is hard to imagine. And many people who you meet in real life who are actors, and I've met many of them, are acting when they're acting. And in their real life, they're just sort of, eh, 
they're fine. Like, they're not that funny, actually, and they're not that cool. Josh Gad is funny in real life. And I don't mean funny because he breaks out in the song. I can't even do it, like the Wedding Ringer song, when it all goes wrong, wrong, wrong. That's not even the words. But I'm talking about observationally. I'm talking the ability to articulate situations and make them funny. Not like stand-up comedian funny, but just every day walking down the street, going into a restaurant, texting, talking. Josh Gad is one funny man. If you have a chance to follow him on social media, if you have a chance to see the work he's done, you should, because he's able to show you in his work his humor. But if you're lucky enough to be in his orbit, as many of you are, he does a ton of charitable work and all the other things he does, uh, you will know. Josh Gad, I love you, man. You are the funniest person I know in real life. And when we're together, I got to do it, Coco, right? I'm going to do it right now. Just You can wipe and do it. Ready? Four, six, nine. And as you're going through life and you, <laughs> that's not it. Hold on. Ready? One more time. Four, sixty-nine, eighty-two. And that's it for the Nothing Personal with David Sampson mailbag episode. And remember, we'll be back again, likely Monday. It's just business. Have a safe weekend. This is Nothing Personal. <laughs> Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.